let me tell you something. And this is between you and me. I really appreciate you being here. In fact, many days, it makes my day. The fact that I produce this podcast and you take the time out of your day to listen. Simple, right? But it's not. You're busy. You have a lot of things that pull you this way and that over the course of your days and nights. And not only that, but when you do have the time to devote to a podcast, like when you're driving on a run, doing the dishes, or just winding down with a glass of wine, there is no lack of choices. There are a lot of good podcasts out there. And a few that are great. The fact that you choose mine is amazing. Again, thanks. I want to take you behind the scenes for a minute. Not so much behind the scenes of the podcast, but my life. Let me tell you about my mornings, okay? They go something like this. I wake up most days at about 6.30. Now, this is on a work day. Currently, Thursday through Mondays. Yes, working at a winery is weird. But that's just life in hospitality. But I'm digressing. I get up a good three hours before I have to be at the winery because I like to ease into my mornings. I get up, I walk to the kitchen and turn on the coffee that I have carefully set up the night before. Then I feed Olive. Olive, my sweet, all-black kitty cat. She's a priority. After that, I shave. And then it's coffee time. Once I'm settled in with the coffee and the laptop, I take a quick look at emails and then Facebook, primarily to see who's having a birthday. I send a few birthday greetings, maybe scroll the Facebook for a few minutes until I get tired and frustrated with what the Facebook algorithm is showing me. Then I tab over to a site called buzzsprout.com. This is my podcast's host site where it lives, essentially. The site I upload the new episodes to. The site I pay a little bit of money each month to for hosting the podcast and sending it out to all the apps. Buzzsprout is great, helpful, informative, encouraging. It was Buzzsprout that made me believe I could even put together a podcast. If you're thinking about it, you need Buzzsprout. But this is not about Buzzsprout. This is about something I look forward to seeing each morning. While I sip my coffee and browse the Buzzsprout site, and I do this each day, I look at the statistics for my podcast. I can see how I'm doing. That's what statistics are supposed to show you, right? How you're doing. My stats tell me how many listens I have so far each day and where those downloads are coming from. This is how I come to tell you I have listeners in 66 countries and 48 of these United States And since it's morning, it's not a very big number, but there's usually a few. And more if there's a new episode. That's the biggest day of all. New episode day. On new episode day, I wake up and already have quite a few listens for the new episode. I'm guessing these are my subscribers, since at this point I have yet to post about the new episode on the social medias, which is what I do next on the first day of a new one. I assemble the Instagram post with pictures of the wines and the guests and everything, Then I wrote a caption, making sure to tag all the people and wineries and appropriate hashtags, copy to Facebook, and voila! By this time, I've finished my coffee, and it's time to finish getting ready for work. Walking, feeding dogs, 
choosing an appropriate outfit for the day's weather at the winery, typically with an extra spring in my step, and of course, very shortly, that feeling of, okay, now let's start writing the next episode. So again, in a very roundabout way, many, many thanks for listening. It's greatly appreciated. Now let's get to what's in my glass. It is a Cabernet Sauvignon from Tuscany, the 2013 vintage. If you follow me on Instagram, you saw a picture of a label a few weeks ago. My first time tasting legit. An absolutely iconic picture on the label, and obviously a very cool cat with sunglasses on, and reflected in the lenses is keys. Piano keys. Turns out the picture on the label is a photo of the pianist Thelonious Monk. I like the wine a lot. It sort of haunted me for a few days. So I tracked down more of it, the 2013, and now I've got a pretty good stash, which I'll be enjoying through the fall. The more I thought about how cool this wine was, with the label art, the quality, etc., I decided to reach out to the winery in Italy via email just to let them know I'd probably be talking about it on the podcast at some point. And hey, why not ask if someone from the winery could talk to me for the podcast about the wine? Well, that'd be cool, too. And I got someone. Not just anyone. I've actually got the woman who helped to develop the wine for her family's winery. From Tolaini Winery. This is Leah Tolaini. 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 Leah, say your last name for me. So Tolaini. Tolaini is the last name. But oh, okay. Tolaini is fine. I like to say it properly, though, you know? I, I, I When people say their name to me, I like to say it back to them exactly the way they have said it to me. So now that I know, it's Tolaini. Perfect. Well done. Good job. Oh, thank you so much. I try to be a good student. So this wine that we're talking about right here. Yep, and I have one here. I was just about to have a sip, actually. Oh, nice. I was sipping on it last night, and it just never ceases to amaze me just how uh, how wonderful it is. And it's not a super expensive wine. And it comes from, you know, one of those places a lot of people don't expect to uh, get a delicious Cabernet Sauvignon. Because your winery is in Chianti Classico. Is that correct? That's right. We're in Castelnuovo Berardenga, the southern part of Chianti Classico, closer and, to Siena. And the grapes are growing there in one of your vineyards. Yes. These are the San Giovanni vineyards. The Cabernet Sauvignon is planted. It's about four kilometers from here, but it's 24 hectares of a vineyard, mostly Cabernet Sauvignon. San Giovanni vineyard, which of course yeah. sounds a lot like Sangiovese. But, is there Sangiovese growing in the San Giovanni vineyard? No, that would no. be too confusing. <laughs> no, we have uh, another vin- another two vineyards, Montebello and Valle Nuova, and those are here up at the winery. It's another 25 hectares. This was the original estate my father bought, and there's 12, 14 hectares of Sangiovese here. So let's talk a little bit about the advent of this wine, the legit Cabernet Sauvignon Tolaini. Was the 2013 the first vintage? 2013 was the first vintage. And as you said, most people do not think of Cabernet Sauvignon when they think of Chianti Classico. Uh, And that's exactly where this whole idea for legit came from. 
So legit, the label is Thelonious Monk. I don't know if you knew that or not, but Thelonious Monk, who was a jazz pianist, extraordinary. He was father of, of jazz, for sure, father of bebop, hip-hop. I had the opportunity to meet Thelonious Monk's son, Thelonious Monk, who's also an artist. He's the third, right? Yes, the gentleman on the label is the second. Right. It's a long story, and I'll try to make it as short and interesting as possible. When we one day were sitting in the winery tasting this Cabernet Sauvignon, this 2013 vintage that had been in bottle, it was 2018, and it was just coming into its own. Michelle Roland was the consultant on this wine, so it was a big wine. It needed some time. So in 18, we were tasting it. I tasted with a group from Texas, actually. And they just kept saying, what a legit Cabernet Sauvignon, what a legit Cabernet Sauvignon. So it kind of stuck. Then I was shocked to find out there was no other wine by the name of Legit, which is another pretty interesting fact. But that is interesting. Yeah. So then I started thinking, you're right. You know, most people, when they think of Cabernet Sauvignon, they don't think of Italy. They think of Napa or Bordeaux, a few places before they actually think of Tuscany. Never mind Tuscany, but Canti Classico. I started researching using the name, what would be a good image most of our labels are pretty traditional. So this was definitely an exit from that philosophy for sure. But I came across this picture of Thelonious Monk that I loved and started thinking about Thelonious Monk and where he came from. You know, we say he's American, but we know that his roots dating back a while were probably not from the United States. Make an assumption. Yet uh, he was also very loved in, in Italy. It turns out that this picture that I found and that I fell in love with is the album cover of his 1963 Live in Milan. I like the way that came back around because you didn't know at the time that it was from an album recorded in Italy. Had had no idea. I remember showing a mock-up of the label to my son, to my son Alex, and he was, that was a stupid idea, mom, that's a dumb idea. And then... I'm not lying. Really? The next day, yep. The next day he came into the house and he had a poster and he held it up and it was the album cover with this picture, Thelonious Monk, Live in Land, 1963, Riverside Records. And it was a very serendipitous moment where he and I both went, oh my God, we have to do this. This, like you said, came full circle and completely made sense. So the Italian part of it, so when I spoke to Thelonious Monk III, he told me that his father loved Italy, that he was actually, we'll say, became famous in Italy and in France first before the United States. The critics in the U.S. used to pan him. And in Italy and France, they loved him very much. So he loved spending time in Italy. Um, and only after they got he got really good reviews in Italy and France did uh, things turn around for him in the United States. So it's an interesting story because his music is very unique. There's a Spotify code on the back. So if you go to your Spotify app and you go to the camera on the search bar, you can scan it and you get the album, the full album. And it's a lovely album to listen to in the evening while you're eating dinner and sipping this wine. Just kind of all comes it, full circle. Right. It's great. It's a good package. Can we step back in the uh, the story here just a little bit to you tasting the wine? So you grow Cabernet. Yes. I'm assuming you also make Chianti and Chianti Classico. I do. Under yes. the Tolaini label. But you had made this Cabernet on its own, and it was aged in barrel for a couple of years, and then it was bottled 
and it was sort of on hold. Is that where you were with it? I'm not really sure how it happened because at the time we had Valdisanti, which was about 85% Cabernet Sauvignon. We didn't have a 100% cab. Starting around 2013 was present for all the tastings, et cetera, but I missed that one. And I'm, I still, to this day, don't remember how we ended up with a big amount. I think it was like 100,000 bottles of Cabernet Sauvignon that had, yes, aged in French oak for 18 months. And again, these were this was a big wine. Uh, it was hard to drink in 2014, 15, 16, or well, 15, 16. 17 and it started coming into his own. I mean, now it's drinking amazing well. But it is still a wine that I describe to people as very big and still quite chewy with a lot of life left in it because the tannic structure is still really, really there. It's really present. Well, in Castelnova Beridenga, it's also an area, a region that is known for giving power to wines. There's a lot of tannins that happen naturally around here. So I think that that is also very evident in the wine. It'll age for a very long time. So let me walk you through my process of buying wine. I'm out there in the world. You know, I love wine. I work at a winery. I've been working with wine professionally for 25, 30 years now in uh, various capacities, mostly restaurants. Now I work at a winery in Sonoma and, you know, I love wine. I want to drink the good stuff. I want to drink the good stuff all the time. Right. But I'm on a regular guy sort of budget. So I'm always out there looking for wine that maybe is undersung or maybe forgotten about. And I came across this wine. I just have to say that, first of all, the label caught my eye. And I didn't know at yeah. the time that it was Thelonious Monk until I looked at the wine and said, oh, that's that's a 2013 cab. And I did a little research on what people were saying about that wine. And it's, I look at a site called Cellar Tracker. And a lot of people on Cellar Tracker had really nice things to say about the wine recently. Okay, well, it's still holding up. That sounds great. And again, not that expensive. So let's check out the winery. And then I did a little bit of reading and I saw that it was a picture of Thelonious Monk, which I didn't know. I just thought it was a cool picture of a cool looking guy. And I play a little bit of piano myself and you see the reflection of the piano keys in his sunglasses there. So for me, it really like that, that label just reached out. And sort of grabbed me. So I bought a few bottles. And then when I tasted it, it was, it's so, uh, it over delivered for what I thought it might end up being. I do believe the quality price point ratio is very high on this wine. It's great. It's a great wine. You know, I think all of our wines at Tulane, we want to make sure that everybody's drinking them, they're on everybody's table. So we work very hard. We're organic certified in Italy. And it's all manual harvest, manual operations in the vineyard. We're doing harvest right now. I was just down there. So a lot of effort goes into the wines here that we make. But yes, I firmly believe in making sure that the quality is high and that the price is good so that people can drink them. Now, you also mentioned another fairly iconic figure in the wine world. I didn't know that Michel Roland was involved in this wine. Tell me about your relationship with him. Michelle uh, started here at the very beginning and was here till 2017. He's a very good friend, a wonderful human being, an amazing palate. I learned a lot from him. It was a great opportunity to taste wines with him every time he came. We'd have lots of fun. Uh, you said he great, started great at the beginning. Now, when was the beginning? The beginning was 2002, was our first harvest. Uh, and I think Michelle was here 2004. 2002 in Italy, if everybody remembers, a very rainy vintage, not so good. 2003 was super hot, 
not so good again because it was extremely hot that whole summer. So 2004 was a great vintage. That's actually when he started. And your father purchased the winery in 2002 then? He purchased the winery in 1996 and he replanted all the vineyards. And so my father was born in Italy, in Lucca, uh, in Tuscany, and he immigrated to Canada when he was 20. The plan was to go to Canada, work for a few years, come back, buy a farm, marry your high school sweetheart and make wine like his, his parents did, right? Okay. Uh, but that didn't work out. Once he got to Canada, he worked very hard and ended up building Canada's largest privately owned trucking company, transportation company, which actually was also an operator in the United States. So he became successful and wanted to go back at 62 years old. He came back to Italy and this was his dream was to do the wine. So he started with one vineyard that was about 12 hectares. Then he bought the one next door, which was another 13 hectares. Then we bought San Giovanni's. My dad didn't know how to do anything in small measure. So (laughs) that's how we went from making wine for friends to making, you know, 300,000 bottles of wine. At 62 years of age. That's impressive. That's a good testament to the, uh, the old saying, it's never too late. Right. He passed away, unfortunately, in 2020, but up till that point was very active in in all of his businesses. And he loved the business. He loved Italy. I mean, you know, obviously being born here and spending a good part of his life, it was great for him to come home and do this as well. So it was uh, cool. That's a great story. The wine is a great story and your dad's story is pretty great, too. Thank Thank you you. so much for sharing. So are you finished harvesting? No, we probably have another few weeks. They just went through and cleaned up some of the leaves off the grapes so they get the sun. Sangiovese specifically dropped some fruit. It's not supposed to rain for the next few weeks, so we're hoping for lots of sun. Of course, it will all be matured at the same time and we'll have to run like crazy people. (laughs) Um, But for now, it's holding on. It was a late spring, very late spring, lots of rain in May and June, so... Being organic required lots of work in the vineyards to keep the mildew away, but it's going to end up being a good vintage. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Great. Well, it was very nice to get to meet you. And thank you so much for liking uh, Legit. Uh, That means a lot. I love hearing the story from people that when they find it and it calls to them and they then discover the wine, it's great. I'm glad because that was, of course, the plan. Right. Yeah. It's again, it's a unique thing. It's a unique thing and it it lives up to its name. Legit. Great. Well, thank you. I thought she would have an Italian accent, but no, she sounds more Canadian, eh? What else has been in my glass? Surprise, surprise, another Cabernet. And this one is from what we've come to call the usual suspects here on the podcast. The state of Washington, Walla Walla to be precise, from a winery and a family named Figgins, who didn't always call themselves that. The Figgins Estate wines are made by Chris Figgins, son of Gary Figgins, Gary, the founder of what I like to call the state's first cult winery. Back when Washington wine was barely on the national radar, the wines made by the elder Figgins' Leonetti Cellar got some pretty big scores from the national wine press. The wines were made in small quantities, so supply 
and demand created somewhat of a cult following. Chris grew up around all that excitement and eventually went on to take over winemaking from his dad in the early 2000s. And when all goes well in the world of wine, you expand. Hence was born Figgins Estate. I recently spent an evening with their 2010 Estate Red, a mostly cab blend. According to my pal Sean P. Sullivan of Northwest Wine Report, 2010 was a very ageable year in Washington. I can tell you the wine is made for the long haul. In fact, it was so tightly wound and massive and tannic, I wished I'd have saved it for another five years or so. I also wish I'd have been eating a well-marbled and salted ribeye. I feel as though what they may be trying to achieve at Figgins is truly to make a Washington Bordeaux. Bordeaux of the first growth variety. Wines intended to cellar not for a decade, but for decades. Like some of the big names from France. The Latours, the Aubryons, the Lafitte Rothschilds, and that ilk. Nothing wrong with that at all. They would seem to be succeeding this far. Cheers to the Figginses. As I said at the top of the program, many thanks for listening to the podcast. I appreciate it. If you'd like to help defray the cost of production, I'm including a support the podcast link in the show notes of this episode. Or you can go to tallmikewine.com. You can help with the cost of archiving the episodes, which are all still available for you to check out. Going back to January of 2021. Oh, and the coasters, the official Tall Mike Wine Podcast coasters. They are not cheap to produce, and I love to hand them out. In fact, if you'd like a stack of your own, drop me a note to tallmikewine at gmail.com. I'll thank you in advance for considering a small monthly contribution. I took some pictures of today's Zoom call with Leah. You can see them on the Instagram at tallmikewine. Follow me to see what I'm up to. Show me what you're sipping with the hashtag SexyBottleShot. Oh, and tell your friends. I'll have another episode soon. Check out the archives if you haven't been with me from the early days. That's all I can tell you for this time. In Novato, California, I'm Mike Stone. Keep swirling. Keep sniffing. Keep sipping. Cheers. Cheers.